I was going to ask you about like this glute mead thing uh, that was like, that was kind of bugging me. But then I went for an easy ride yesterday and I, I totally ate it unless like the tiniest puddle I could have possibly found. And I did a turn on it. Oh no. And so now I'm covered oh. in road rash. And so I'm like, now the glute thing isn't, doesn't seem so bad. So it's no longer, <laughs> it's not. It's like rubbing your, it's like rubbing your head when you've got a headache. Hi everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Andrew is uh, away today, so I am doing a solo interview with uh, my dear friend, Peter Kissel. Peter is a sports chiropractor who has treated me and a lot of the uh, a lot of the folks that I coach in the Toronto area for oh, well uh, at least five years. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, I'd say so. Probably something along those lines. Peter is uh, is my go to for both for treatment, but also for a lot of uh, information when it comes to. Um, injury, injury prevention, and, and treatment. Oftentimes, uh, because our schedules are quite busy, I don't actually go to see him. I'll just send him an email. I'll say, Pete, you know, this thing hurts. This is what I did to it. What do you, what do you think it is? Uh, <laughs> and uh, and he's, uh, he's always kind enough to point me in the right direction. So, uh, Peter, thanks very much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, the kind of the elephant in the room, and this is where I want to start this conversation, is there is a little bit of... Uh, let's say discomfort with, uh, with some folks with, um, with chiropractors. Um, and you know, we, Andrew and I kind of, we, we pride ourselves on a, on a very evidence-based show. And the reason that I obviously asked you to, to be on it is I have full, full comfort with your grounding in that kind of, uh, in that kind of thinking. Uh, but before we get rolling with the, uh, with all the stuff that we want to talk about is I'd love for you to address that particular elephant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess thanks for the opportunity to do so. Um, you know, it's funny, like one of the things that used to be celebrated for chiropractors is uh, the diversity therein. I think at this point, it's uh, generally viewed as a negative, both within and outside of the profession. Um, it's never a great thing to sort of have the same injury and see a number of practitioners and get a number of different opinions. Now, sometimes those are valid as uh, people systematize their approach and say, well, this is how I view things, but mm -hmm. they can be fairly drastically different in our profession. And so I think there's some semblance of, uh, of a historical public mistrust largely predicated upon that. Um, you know, people sort of, uh, think of chiropractors and immediately go to the model of care of yesteryear, um, whereby, you know, they'd have these super quick appointments, everything is cured by uh, spinal manipulation, um, you know, high volume practices, seeing as many people as they possibly could. And obviously, that's not generally associated with the best types of outcomes. Uh, I'd say the more contemporary chiropractors, uh, and I'm I'm involved, and so is my wife, in the education at the the only chiropractic school in Canada uh, is very evidence based. Uh, they value their system based upon that, um, you know. And so the model of care that they learn leaving the school nowadays is is one that's very very good. Um, you know, it's multi multimodal. Um, the majority of the emphasis is based on reassurance and education, uh, therapeutic exercises 
you know, obviously there's a manual therapy approach to it, but it's not the only approach as it previously was. Um, you know, it takes a long time to change public per- perception. So I think sure. it's going to take years and potentially even decades to do so. But I can say from sort of the front lines as an educator, um, that it's well in the works, the majority of the people that are graduating now are are taught and come through a very evidence based model uh, that's synonymous with good outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to my own experience. um, And I'm pretty sure you're the only chiropractor that's ever treated me but I've had a whole slew of, you know, other manual therapists like RMTs and and, you know, um, and physiotherapists. And uh, yeah, my experience with you has always been, it is, it is that, it, that, that education component that you mentioned in your, um, in, in your description now, that, that's always been, well, first of all, that's been something that's attracted me to your practice specifically, because I'm curious and I want to know and I want to learn. Sure. But that's always where you, you, you always start our conversations when I've either come to see you or, or we've had a chat over the phone. You, you know, I'll say, this is, this is what, this is what's, what's going on. You, you kind of, you assess what's, what's happening and, you know, you give me your diagnosis and then you give me, you know, three or four studies that talk about the best, uh, the best course of treatment for, uh, for fixing whatever it is that ails me. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for that, that, uh, you know, I think that the relationship between the individual seeking care and the therapist has to be a good synchronous match. So I think that we sort of jive and a lot of the people that you send to me jive are because they're under your tutelage anyways, and they probably have a similar thought process. Um, So for you and I, it's quite simplistic because, you know, we both value a uh, an educational hierarchy just generically and that uh, transfers over to the management of injuries. Um, you know, I certainly get people through the door that are used to more sort of what's thought of as a traditional approach. And sometimes that's, you know, becomes very evident and very clear that they're not going to jive with me as their therapist. And so mm-hmm. if that's the case, there's no point in wasting time. And, you know, I'll happily point them in the direction of somebody that might be better suited to, to their needs and their desires. But, uh, you know, I think there's something to be said just uh, between the therapist and the patient relationship as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it works exactly the same as as you pointed out in a in a coach athlete relationship. There are folks, absolutely yeah, there are folks that I've worked with who you know we lasted three months and that was that because we right. just, you know we were on different planes and uh, and others who have had you know since since I started X three in what seven years ago. So yeah, that's just how it goes. Right. So let's uh, let's kick things off um, with uh, a little bit of a connection to the last episode that we did, listeners, which was, of course, with uh, Coach David Tilbury Davis, and uh, he he gave us a really great synopsis of how he thinks about recovery um, and things that are you know related to recovery, like load management and uh, and some of the modalities that he values in uh, in recovery and the two purposes of recovery that are really important in my opinion are of course adaptation to training, but also adequate recovery is essential for injury prevention. And uh, this is where I want to start the conversation with Peter. Um, and the question I want to put to you, Pete, is if you can rank your, your hierarchy and this, <laughs> there's, this, there's a great, I'm going to go, go off the rails a little bit. There's a great infographic by, uh, Steven Seiler about the, uh, the Maslow-esque hierarchy of endurance needs, where which is famous and it's it's cited by a lot of coaches. Right. Uh, so I want to put Pete on the spot and say, oh, awesome. Peter, what's your hierarchy <laughs> for 
for injury prevention from things that you think are the most important that have the greatest, you know, basis in evidence to things that are perhaps less important? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's reasonable. But even before that, uh, got to compliment your last uh, podcast. I found myself nodding in agreement over and over to essentially everything that David was saying there, and uh, probably just my own bias. But I feel like everything that somebody says with an English accent always comes out a little bit smarter <laughs> <laughs> and a bit more verbose. And just uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, really bright guy. I actually took a lot from that podcast for sure. And I I, I think that. Uh, everything he was saying, I was like, yes, yes, like just agreeing with more and more. So uh, <laughs> yeah, kudos to both of you guys on a great podcast for sure. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I you certainly won't disagree with your assessment of, uh, of Tilbury Davis on that one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, look, like, to your point, uh, I deal more in the injury prevention realm than the sort of acute recovery, like a performance coach would uh, certainly a sure. little bit of background in both. But, uh, you know, it's one of the most common questions that that we get as therapists is just, you know, how do I prevent X, Y, and Z from happen, uh, from happening? And, you know, realistically, the first thing, again, pointing to education is that there's no such thing as sort of a, a bulletproof tool. Uh, you know, it's running and triathlon in general, or just any endurance sport is a very high injury incident activity. Like, uh, I mm -hmm. think the point prevalence of injury for, for any sort of endurance athlete must be, well, I'm, I'm assuming well between 50 and 80% in any given season that people would have some sort of niggle, if not like a larger uh, injury that uh, causes some time loss. Um, I think just generically sort of skewing the literature and things that have actually had good evidence to prevent injury, it can be sort of honed down to just a few things. Um, first and foremost, for sure. So my knee jerk reaction when somebody asks this and uh, oftentimes people don't like hearing it, but, uh, my number one recommendation for sure is strength training. Um, mm, okay. Yep. For some reason, a lot of endurance athletes tend to be allergic to strength training and, uh, they <laughs> prefer to, uh, sort of kick back to old sort of dogmatic views on it. Well, I'm an endurance athlete, so I have to do super high repetition, low weight endurance training, because that's more similar to my sport. But I mean, if you look at the actual evidence that's out there it's the exact opposite right it's lifting heavy it's compound movements uh you know actually you know what the british journal of sports medicine right now is doing this great uh running myths infographic series have you seen this at all or any of them i think there's only been three or no you gotta you gotta send this to me yeah i think there's been three or four they're in like a poster format they're they're awesome and uh yeah one of the three of them was literally on strength training and saying that you know strength training is absolutely essential but on top of that they were suggesting that for performance enhancement uh, and injury prevention uh you know it needs to be high load uh low rep high number of sets and like the big lifts step up squats deadlifts lunges yeah. like people have to get comfortable with those things as opposed to you know reductionist lifts like little leg extensions and what have you it's important to have like these global movements people have to get used to lifting heavy um, you know, there's a phys physical therapist from, uh, from England that's got a moniker that's just, you can't go wrong getting strong. And I couldn't agree with what he said <laughs> more. I think it's a number one way. Anything that rhymed. <laughs> yeah. And it's the internet. So he probably stole it from a bunch of other people previously, like everything else, but it's, uh, sure. Yeah. It's my general recommendation is, you know, strength training heavy, uh, obviously more frequently in the off season is sort of a, uh, injury prevention method, but they still have to be able to keep it up at least somewhat throughout the season as well. Uh, maybe to not same, not to the same volume uh, because their load has to switch to other forms, obviously, in terms of their actual sport. Um, so that would be certainly my number one recommendation. I think the other one that's got a reasonable amount of evidence, and this is where it's super important to work with uh, with someone like yourself, 
is uh, an appropriate and systematic increase in volume. Um, right. You know, kind of one of the in vogue terms over the last decade for sport and sport performance has been load management, as I'm sure you're aware. But even having a relationship with somebody like you, when you send me an athlete immediately, you know, I send a follow up email and we can work together in regards to recommendations over the acute training load over the next week or the two weeks. If you have to yep. deload a tissue or just deload the person in general, um, you have to be comfortable working with a coach based on that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of research on it for sure. Um, it's kind of like the most popular researcher out there is a guy named Tim Gabbett. He's from Australia. Uh, I think I've actually chatted with you about him before. You've mentioned his name, yes. Um, he's got that acute to chronic workload ratio, which, you know, it's, I love the idea of it. It's, I think it's a very difficult thing to actually utilize because realistically you have to look at, you know, all intrinsic and extrinsic training loads uh, a couple of times per day to be able to accurately assess them. Sure. Um, so I think it's more for the, like, you know, the high performance athlete for sure. But the generic ideas that he's got out there are great. Uh, and I think they're applicable across sports. And a lot of his research is on like Aussie rules football and some of the other sports that are out there. But uh, I remember, you know, reading his original papers and actually emailed him. Oh, I don't know, it must have been probably three or four years ago at this point, and just asking, like, hey, do you think that these variables would transfer over to endurance sports like running? And he emailed back that himself and at that point his research partner were so confident in it that they didn't think it was worthwhile even doing a paper on it. Like that's how obvious it seemed to them uh, that load management is super important. Um, you know, they were also the guys that suggested uh, roughly a 10% increase weekly is sort of the, mm -hmm. you know, the quote-unquote golden rule in terms of appropriate appropriate load increase and they actually like sort of quantified that showing the the risk of injury and how it shoots up fairly dramatically after about a 15 percent increase so uh again like long-winded response just saying like an appropriate and systematized approach to load increase on an individual basis is probably the other uh super important part so that would sort of be my I guess if you ask for a, a Maslow's hierarchy, that would be the baseline for sure. Like those two variables. Those two things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, I'll make a very quick note about uh, about load management. And we talked to David about it quite a bit. And we've actually done a, a, a previous episode with him on season planning where we talked about load right. management as well. So listeners, check that one out if you like. But there's, there's uh, you know, you make a lot of really good points that quantifying the... Um, quantifying the load is very very difficult and it's easy in the it is yeah it's it's easy in the kind of in the age of sports gadgets and david made this point last week but it's super easy to fall into the trap of thinking you can measure everything um and you can put a number to it and, and yeah. work to the numbers and that's just not the, that's not in practice that's not the case dude i have a, like a yeah i have an acute example of that like i so i got really into you know gadgets and tech for a period of time yep. i actually think you might have been coaching me at the time uh for my uh super slow amateur <laughs> half marathons that I was running at the point, but uh, I was using something called a whoop band. Yep. Do you know what of that course. is? Yes. It, yeah, it's in yeah. the news so a lot was, in, the, in my circle. Yeah. Yeah. Now it is. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think they've even been able to help some algorithms look at uh, COVID stuff with the whoop band. I think I read something on oh, that really? okay. recently, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, fascinating product. Like I was, I even went and visited their, um, their lab in Boston um because i was pretty into it for a period of time there just like i was super curious in terms of uh, again just a curious mind in terms of how they actually go about creating their variables and you know 
they showed me their white paper. Well, didn't actually show me it, but sort of the data from their white paper with HRV data. Like they had such a robust data set that it's like they don't they don't even really know what to do with the amount of data that they've got. It's, it's a really interesting company, actually. But for me personally, I had to stop wearing it because it was messing with me. Mm-hmm. Like I, it was so analytical that it was like becoming problematic for me, uh, specifically with sleep. Yeah, like where. I would rely on this thing to show me how I slept, what my HRV data was, and all these other things. Um, and it would affect me throughout the day, where if it showed that I had a crappy sleep, I'd be like, well, today's a write-off. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it was just a mental, it was a mental hurdle for yeah. me. And then, and then I'm thinking about it, and I'm, I'm like, I'm like the lowest level of amateur athlete here. Like, why should this even matter? But uh, I almost became obsessive over it, and I actually had to stop wearing it because of that. So there's so many, so many things that we can talk about here and dive deep. I'm gonna try to avoid it, but I totally agree with you because one of the things that that one of the problems with Whoop is that their sensor isn't that great. So you're getting, right. you know, it's a, it's a classic problem of garbage in, garbage out. And we've talked about this with um, with a bunch of different people in different fields who do sensors, uh, specifically in aerodynamic sensors. We had a great episode with Chris Moore. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. it's super, another super complicated kind of uh, analysis uh, to be done unless you have really, really good data. Um, and so mm-hmm. the, the, the flack that I've seen Whoop take in the last couple of, you know, in their last iteration of their device is that this, their sensor is actually not super accurate. Like it's not as good as the other, uh, as the other optical heart rate sensors that are current mm. that are out on the market from, you know, like Apple or, or the, the sensor that Garmin uses or, um, uh, you know, a bunch of their competitors. So they're, they're offering all of this super detailed um, advice and data analysis on potentially flawed flawed data and to your point i have an athlete that i coach who um who uses a similar device not a whoop but um uh and she the aura ring or something like yeah that? no it's it's actually one of the garmin devices that does um they, they oh, okay. call it body battery but it's essentially like live hrv well not live but okay it's hrv that they measure uh date all throughout the day kind of like what whoop does right the analysis is different yeah. and it's handled by first beat which garmin just acquired interestingly um okay. and they're like they're a, a scandinavian company that did a lot of this heart rate is garmin back up by the way yeah they're back on up. a complete tangent are they yeah oh they yeah, are they, 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 some, curious, somebody yeah. somebody somebody paid their 10 million dollar ransom <laughs> we don't know who it's kind really? of yeah well that's what they were held for oh my god yeah, yeah i knew it was ransomware but yeah. Jesus, well, so, so the rest of the endurance world can uh, sleep happily again <laughs> yeah the, all the all the strava <laughs> segments can go back up now yeah um yeah, yeah. but anyway so so this this athlete is um was was using this device and using it to to gauge how well recovered she is because uh, she wears it for you know when she sleeps for for recovery yeah. and it was just mm-hmm. giving us com- like nonsense data and it would have it would the same thing that you were describing, it would affect her. She would say, you know, my my body battery was low this day, even though I felt okay. And then I, you know, I didn't want to do this hard training session, even though I felt fine. And I'm thinking, like, I, I think we're getting poor data here. Like this isn't, I don't think that the, the, the device is working correctly, or maybe it's just not working very well for you. And it's, it's, it's easy to fall into that trap, 100%. I think you can totally go overboard with that stuff, uh, specifically on sort of the more amateur level just generically and uh yeah anyways that was certainly the case for me was uh um yeah i i I eventually found it to be disruptive it's not for me you know albeit i think i actually gave it away to somebody and that was probably three years ago and i know that they're still wearing it so uh for certain people they you know they really like it and they pride themselves on the data it's just uh certainly wasn't a product for me 
the thing is, I think that if you look at these things as measurement tools, like a tape measure, yeah. and you take the data that it gives you, but you always have to put it into context of what, what else is going on in your life. You can't just kind of, you cannot divest the decision making yes. that you, you or your coach would normally undertake to a device or to an AI currently, not yet, maybe in a few years. Mm. Um, but it's, it's impossible that that technology doesn't exist yet. Gotcha. Um, same thing with like, again, aero sensors, right? Like it'll give you a number, but what does that number mean? Or like a power, even a power meter, like what is, you know, what What's 250 watts up a hill mean? You know, right. what's 400 watts mean? Yeah. Is it good? Is it bad? Sure. And you know, the, the same could be said for certain aspects of like uh, super detailed uh, the, uh, biomechanical data from, you know, 3D sensor mm-hmm. run, run gate analysis, right? Oh, like, yes. Yeah. Like it's not always, um, it's not always transferable and useful data to an individual or a coach or even a biomechanist because that's not always something that can be addressed. It's just like, you know, well, here's your tibial impact at uh, at foot strike, and you know all the all these variables that sure in isolation might be important if the individual has a corresponding injury that you could deduce. Okay, maybe that has an impact on it, but for you know for the majority of the population, it's probably a lot of fairly uh, useless and data overload. This is fascinating because our next interview, because Andrew is going to be on this one, um, is going to be with Leomo. Have you heard of them? They're like the big IMU company right now, um, inertial measurement units. Okay. Uh, so they were they started with cycling, but now they're moving into running. Oh, okay. So they have exactly that. So they have um, three or six, depending on the platform you choose, yeah. of these units that have a three-axis gyro yeah. and accelerometer. Yeah, yeah. So six sensors. And so they have you know, depending on, you can decide where to put these units, right? They're not just like foot pods that go on your shoe. Yes. You can put it yeah, anywhere. Yeah. And there's like a million and one uses for them. Right. Yeah. And so they have like, they have a pretty, pretty advanced software. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But to your point, it's data over, it can be, can be data yeah, overload. For sure. And for researchers, it's amazing. Like I know for a while, yeah, University right? of Calgary, like, uh, what's his name? Reed Ferber and his, his yep, group yep. there was, uh, like selling the actual like 3d optic units right like i think medcans was from university of cal i could be wrong on that but i know that uh they'd add them in a variety of settings and like the the data that you get with it like you know there's you know pages and pages and pages of great kinematic data it's just a matter of you know i think it's great for certain purposes but not always for every individual but it is it is pretty pretty it's pretty fucking cool though to, <laughs> to, to watch for sure yeah. i'm like oh this is amazing it's not it's not necessarily a cons- an, an end user consumer product and so go. i'm i'm super excited about that's a good way to put it yeah super excited about these these devices coming out and being you know marketed and sold to to you know end users and i love playing with them that's why i for usually sure. have like the latest ones yeah but um you know, at the end of the day, you really like I, I'm circling back. You really have to know what to do with the data that you get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. And that's uh, and sometimes like, you don't know. You know, sometimes you're like, I've got I've got athletes saying, oh, my Garmin's telling me that my like, you know, pr- pr- left right balance on my power meter is off, or my like, you know, my stride length is this, and my ground contact time is this, and what does that mean? I'm like, well, pff, <laughs> you know, it could mean a lot of different things, and totally. uh, and I don't. I don't. I frequently don't have the answer to to their question of like, what do what do you do with this information? Yeah, and sometimes it means nothing. Like sometimes it's yep. just like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like if you if you look yep. at the the gate variables with the top ten finishers at the Boston Marathon, like you would see such dramatic variety. It's not like they're all running in a very specific uh, you know cadence or cadence with the exact same ground reaction force and the exact same stride length you'd see all kinds of things that may show as an inefficiency on a run gate analysis but 
it's just right for their body. They're uninjured. So why would you mess with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Peter, I was afraid this was going to happen, that we were going to like dive down a rabbit hole and, uh, and get off the topic <laughs> of sure, injury I'm prevention. Sure, I'm sure there's, yeah, no, 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 I'm sure there's more coming, but uh, yeah, I'll go back to yeah. sort of, no, no. Well, I want to. I want to circle back to strength training because I got a couple oh, sure. of follow up questions. Yeah, yeah, of course. I should have cut in, cut in right there. But um, just in general, if you and I, I get that you're, you know, you you you're going to be careful about prescribing without seeing people. Yep. But in, in general, you mentioned uh, compound movements, which I'm obviously a huge fan of. So yep. for listeners who may not know, these are, you know, these are multi joint movements. You know, yep. your typical powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting movements, right. like squat, deadlift, bench press, yeah. you know, any kind of pulls or rows. Um, but uh, in terms of in terms of programming these, you mentioned that you may want to do a little bit more in the off season than yeah. in, uh, in peak season. But how much time do you think that folks need to de- devote to this? And what does that depend on in terms of like, you know, age or, or you know, uh, condition of the athlete, that kind of stuff? How do you think about that? Yeah, again, like, uh, prescription has to be individualized uh like if it's a novice lifter that's not used to doing those sorts of things you're not going to prescribe them you know uh romanian deadlifts after your first visit or anything like you have to teach them an appropriate hip hinge pattern uh you know the appropriate just spinal lifting mechanics like all these additional things to make sure that they're doing it safely if it's a you know, somebody with a little bit of experience. Well, I'm just looking at that uh, infographic right now from British Journal of Sports Medicine. They suggest three to six sets, five to 15 reps, compound lifts like step up squats and deadlifts and lunges. Uh, and they generally recommend two to three times weekly. Now, again, like that to me is a little bit of a overly generic recommendation mm-hmm. because it's an infographic. Uh, like, I, I think that's, that's a very reasonable prescription for somebody in their off season. And in fact, to be perfectly blunt, like I would keep the person down at that lower rep range. Uh, I think that 15 reps of something like a deadlift or a squat might be a little bit too high. Um, yeah, it's a big neuromuscular load. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, like when you're thinking in season, when their total training load is dramatically elevated, um, you know, as they're building up and then certainly at their peak, um, you know, you would decrease accordingly to make sure that their total training load uh, stays pretty uniform, or at least that you're doing it in a, like we talked about, a method that there's not too acute of an inflection point in the total amount of load to the person's body. Sure. But generally in the off season, yeah, two to three times per week, I think is very, very reasonable. Um, and it's that work at that point that's going to help offset injury throughout the season. Yeah, it's building that building that resiliency, right? Absolutely. And that's the thing. Like, it's about tissue resiliency. Like, uh, I think you can go out, look, like, again, the literature changes on this all all the time. But I think you can go out and say that, like, I guess a whole nother podcast we could do are based on things that I used to recommend that I no longer recommend. (laughs) (laughs) And the shit that I'm saying right now, I'll probably cringe in three years and say, I can't fucking believe I said that on that podcast. And it's it's on the internet forever now. You know what I mean? Like, um, with your name, like, with my name. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, (laughs) yeah, like corrective exercises. Like I used to be such a big fan of, you know, uh, very specific reductionist versions of exercises. And I used to be like, well, that's certainly going to transfer to their run gate. But now I think that the research is pretty, pretty straightforward, suggesting that's not the case. Like, I think that the purpose of strength training to your point, you said it beautifully there is more based on tissue resiliency and strength as opposed to thinking it's going to change a specific gate variable. Like, you know, I'll, I'll have people come in and say, like, you know, I've been told that, uh, 
you know, I like the term we would use is like that they hit that AD duck too much. Like they cross cross over their midline too much. And maybe they've got some IT band compression syndrome or some sort of patellofemoral pain or something. And they keep saying, well, I've been told I have to strengthen my hip. I'll be like, yeah, that's reasonable to me as like one of the components to a comprehensive treatment plan. But to think that, you know, providing somebody with a, you know, a hip clamshell exercise or something along those mm-hmm. lines and expect for that to transfer over to their gait and all of a sudden they're not going to have that same crossover gait is very unreasonable. Like there's no such thing as a corrective exercise that's going to deduce a change in their motor pattern with running. Like there's, you know what, one of my favorite studies on this, and this is an old study, um, I think it was like 2010 or 2011. There's a guy, a biomechanist named Richard Willie or Wiley, something like that. Um, okay. He did one looking at uh, single leg squats. And he was looking specifically to see if it would change the, pers- the, the injured runner's uh, gait pattern in running. So these are people that had patellofemoral pain. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very you know, commonly prescribed exercise for that. You know, It uh, takes a lot of hip strength to be able to do a single leg squat appropriately. Sure. Uh, and essentially the outcome was their gait didn't change, but they got a hell of a lot stronger at single leg squats. Like that, that, <laughs> that, that's, that, that's essentially, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, it's just a component of it. If there's a specific injury and you want to try to address a specific gait pattern, there has to be some semblance of motor relearning for it. You know, um, there's reasonable research as well that gait retraining can help with. In fact, I'd probably put that on my next level of Maslow's hierarchy uh, would be some, some <laughs> semblance of, hierarchy. Come on, take, take sure, some semblance of gait retraining. But again, the caveat being only in the presence of injury. Like I'm a big fan of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or don't fix it. Like if somebody's looking specifically for you know, changes to try to address running economy. Maybe that's one thing you can make minor recommendations, but you have to be pretty careful with that, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a change that's sort of unnecessary can lead to other issues down the line. Um, but yeah, but even with that, like, again, and going further down the rabbit hole, like I took a course with Irene Davis eight or nine years ago. And after leaving that course, it was just like, yep, everybody should be a four foot runner. Like everybody, <laughs> like there's no question in my mind, maybe even barefoot. Yeah. She's still very much on that train, I think. Sure. And I ran a couple of mar- or half marathons and like extreme minimalist shoes. I still use like a, a reasonable minimalist thing. And I walk around in minimalist shoes all day to be fair. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, like I left that thinking, everybody needs to be doing this. And, you know, through the course of time, I've realized that's not necessarily the case at all. In fact, another one of those infographics, I think, addresses that, showing that there's inconsistency evidence for it, um, is, and specifically even with uh, injury prevention, because all you're doing is shifting the load that people have. Like, sure, you hit with a higher ground reaction force when you hit with your heel, and that can have issues with the person's knee and potentially their hip. Um, but if you shift everybody to forefoot, it's just shifting that load to, you know, their calf Achilles, like their other, other, it's not like it just goes away. Do you know what I mean? And physics is a bitch. We've said that on this, on the show, a bunch of times that like, you like have that. To, yeah. yeah, if you're, you know, you've, you've got certain, you're, you're running, you're a certain mass and you're running with a certain velocity. And even if you're very efficient, like that requires a certain amount of power application to the ground, which results to, you know, which it results in a certain force and that force has to be delivered to the ground through through your tissues in one way or another yeah and and look if you're convinced that you need to do that so say somebody's got you know something that's clearly where a high ground reaction force and they're like you can hear them running down the street from a mile away (laughs) and they're getting they're getting you know recurrent stress fractures in their tibia or something you're like you know what 
hammering the ground so hard may not be a great strategy for you. Uh, And (laughs) you go through some sort of gate retraining where you're trying to allow them to land slightly softer. Um, There should be preparatory work even for that. Like you have to try to get their feet a little bit stronger. You have to almost like prepare their tissue for that change in load. It shouldn't just be like a light switch where you're just trying to have like an immediate change in somebody's gait pattern. Because again, that can cause as many or more issues than they like they, they could be worse off after is my point. You have to be a little bit more careful. Whereas nine years ago, every runner I saw, I'd be like, I don't know, everyone's a candidate for, for barefoot running here. You know, mm-hmm. I know you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, but would it be reasonable to say that your, your current position on the matter is that, you know, you, you make the, um, you make the athlete as, as strong and as resilient as, as you can through, you know, adjunct sort of work like strength training and maybe some specific uh, physio exercises. And then you just, let them go run and then you they maybe they run in different footwear or on different surfaces and under different conditions and uphills and downhills yeah. and, and correctly prescribed you know kind of doses and that that's how you that's how you develop that more more that greater efficiency yeah yeah i would say so and then again like you have to you have to have a team right like that's not really so you described my role perfectly at the beginning, the, the secondary aspect of that, and I'm a huge fan of variety, um, all these sorts of things, but that's in the wheelhouse of the of the coach. That's not in sure. my wheelhouse. Like that's where, you know, and even if I get asked those sorts of questions, I can make generic suggestions, but it's always more like, look, I'll, I'll email Michael or I'll email your coach and we'll, we'll talk about it together because, you know, uh, you have to know your turf. Like that's not my turf. My turf is more on the, like, resiliency side that you mentioned um and you know again like it can make some general global recommendations in regards to it but uh i think having you know a good coach like yourself like that's uh that's you know probably the most important role for the individual throughout their season to to stay injury free make sure that they're not doing anything stupid that's that's essentially my my line as people are leaving i spend the whole half hour like my appointments are 30 or 60 minutes spend pretty much the whole time reassuring people uh educating them uh and and again like that another like that's another beautiful point that's that's evolved over the years like it used to be that if you had any sort of pain you shouldn't continue your activity now we know that's probably setting the person up for failure like Mm -hmm. a low level of discomfort is likely perfectly fine um uh it's you know you can't completely there's certainly situations where you have to completely deload a tissue i'm not saying that but you know continuing the person training with a very low level of discomfort is probably okay for a lot of injuries, maybe not all injuries, but for a lot of injuries. And my thought process on that has changed a fair bit over the years as well. Um, But, you know, that's where sort of the therapist and the coach have to come together to come up with an appropriate plan for the person to make sure that they're not overdoing it if they're sort of towing that line a little bit too closely. Right. And that's, I think what you're talking about is um, therapy is a nice segue into the the thing I want to talk to you about next, which is surprise therapy. But uh, let's, let's wrap up this one with a bow, your, uh, the, the Kissel hierarchy. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to rehash it and you tell me if I got it right. So sure. at the bottom, you'll have uh, strength training, yeah. global strength training. Um, then you'll have uh, load management, uh, you know, again, chronic load management to prevent overdoing it, overcooking it. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, form intervention if there is uh, an underlying, um, you know, history of injury. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like that. Uh, that I, I think other aspects with it, the, I, th- I certainly think it's important to listen to your body. Um, yeah, you know, there's been a couple sure. of cool studies on that. Like one of 
one of my favorites because it totally feeds into my confirmation bias. Was, <laughs> Those like are the a, best. Yeah, it's the best yeah. one, man. I read this and I'm like, can I make my own poster of that and hang it all over my office? It was a 2000, <laughs> I don't know, it was probably two years ago, maybe 2018. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So pretty important journal just generically. But they looked at how quickly people started therapy. So this was just for muscle injuries. So it was either strains or tears. Okay. They had two two arms to the treatment. So, or sorry, two arms to the group. So there's 50 people that they followed. Uh, one group started treatment like two days after the acute injury. The other started nine days after. So these were exact dates. They were so like one group was spaced a week apart, essentially. Okay. And the outcome was the people that started at two weeks. So the people that started one week early were able to return to their sport a full three weeks early. Oh, wow than the people that started. Yeah, it made a huge impact overall. So starting seven days earlier, saved you 21 days on the tail end, despite the fact they got the identical treatment. So that was that was part of the study to keep it controlled was the treatment approach was identical between the two groups. So it's very important to listen to your body. Um, you know, there was another somewhat recent study that looked at uh, what they called like niggles. So people that um, had a non-time loss uh, thought process that they were injured. So not enough that they had to be taken out, but like, oh, I've really noticed my hamstring. Uh, if they thought that, they had a three to six higher, three to six times higher likelihood to end up having an injury that caused time loss. So by listening to their body, if they had gone and addressed it beforehand, the likelihood of risk or the likelihood of injury to actually cause them to be out would have been dramatically lower, essentially. So I guess the next part for me would certainly be listening to your body and don't just poo-poo injuries to keep yourself training. Because you see that all the time in your sport. Yes. You guys are crazy. We're, we're stupid. Um, you yeah. actually, this is, I yeah, was, no. I've been thinking of doing, and I got to run this past Sander, but I've been thinking of doing an episode, just like a little short one about things that piss us off. <laughs> um, and the thing that pisses me off and that that I really don't yeah. like is the, the, the no pain, no gain mentality. Uh, I think it's like the absolute yeah. enemy of endurance sport. If you're if you think that way, you're, you're not, oh my your God. career is going to be short and, and painful. You know what else is the enemy for you guys? Is social media, man. Oh, like I see. Oh my God! Like any social media feed is just like populated with people with these insane workouts. Yeah, and then they and then other people feel guilty if they're not going to the same amount. And I'm like, Jesus Christ! Like, yeah, social social media is the enemy of your sport. One hundred percent, and especially like we'll go on this tangent. And we again, David and I. And Andrew talked about this last week, but there are very high profile, very successful um, professional athletes who do this and it's, it's their job. It's their job to put their workouts on social because that's what their sponsors pay them to do because they're like, Oh, I cracked this workout in these shoes or I wore this, like this hat and I ate this jelly bean yeah. and I was able to run, you know, a two, two, <laughs> you know, after eating two slices of pizza, whatever, you know, something stupid like that. And then obvious, there's an obvious correlation there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> people don't, don't understand that these guys are a, they're mutants. They're, they're like, they're yeah. medically, abnormal in the best yeah. possible in sporting context top one percent of our species yeah, exactly yeah. and also they've been like mm -hmm. lifelong athletes most of them they've been like they've totally. been accumulating chronic training load for 20 years you know and that's the, the reason yeah, their bodies can handle that is because of that um and then if yeah. you're you know you're your first year uh, amateur triathlete try and go do that you'll end up you know in in peter kissel's office <laughs> or not hopefully yeah uh, I guess, you know what, the, the last part I'm just thinking about this is uh, I'm jotting down what you told me I already said, apparently, in regards to the, the Kissel uh, hierarchy here. Somewhere in there, and probably at the peak, has to be education. 
Yeah. Um, so this tower keeps growing. It's starting with like two two steps, and now it's now it's becoming a proper pyramid. <laughs> yeah, like it, I think it's probably one of, if not the most important thing. Like people need to be educated. Like the worst thing is seeing somebody come in and say, you know, I was doing X, Y, and Z, and I'll be like, well, why were you doing that? And they say, I don't know. I just, you know, somebody told me to do yeah. to do that. And you know, it's it's a key point to any encounter. In fact, like I've had more. Every year that I'm in practice, I have more sessions cumulatively where I don't touch the individual. And it's just education, exercise prescription, um, and just like talking through their problem. And I could have equal or better outcomes because of that. Um, I think education is super important. Um, I think it's empowering both to the individual to know that they have better control. Like it gives them more of an internal locus of control over their own injury. And I think that in general, therapists, uh, athletes, and again, probably more importantly, therapists, they uh, undervalue education as an appropriate therapeutic tool. Tool. So somewhere in their education has to be there for injury prevention as well. Yeah, I think that's that's beautifully said because one of the things psychologically that happens to athletes, and I know this as kind of uh, you know a recreational athlete myself, but also in, in speaking with with the folks I work with, is when you get hurt, it sucks. Like mentally, psychologically, oh, it's a blow because you've got, you know, you have this trajectory in your mind of, of you know, your 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 moonshot to greatness. Um, not moonshot, yeah. that's the wrong term, but like your, your progression to greatness. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, you're however many weeks out from your event and then you you did something that, that you know, to hurt. And, uh, and then that's, that's a very dark, potentially dark place to be. And so... Yeah, man. And, and it's, so, it's so rampant in my industry too. Like people, a lot of therapists sort of convince people that they're broken. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, you're broken and you need to be fixed, but you know, like humans are resilient. Like I hate to keep rehashing that, that verbiage, but like they're, you know, we're creatures that are built to repair, sustain injury, repair, and come out stronger. Um, people have to recognize that and it's therapist's job to reinforce that just generically for sure. And you know, there's like, there was, there was a pretty controversial study that I loved um, and I, sorry to keep on bringing up studies here because uh, your show notes are probably going to be way too long now. But uh, <laughs> it was on uh, they were they were looking at specific variables with patellofemoral pain. I don't even remember the year of this study, but it would have been a couple of years back. And okay. there was three groups within it: one that had gait retraining, one that was looking at strength because those are probably the two most commonly researched variables to get people better. Okay. And the third group was just a control group. Now the overlying part of it was that all three groups had a five session educational component to this. So they all got these five sessions of education based on the injury, the mechanics behind it, you know, the natural course of it, the things that are well evidenced for it, all these sorts of things, right? And so the control group got that as well, uh, but so did the strength group and so did the gate, uh, the gate group. And obviously the researchers were statistically looking at the gate group and the strength group. However, all three groups had extraordinarily similar outcomes. In fact, none were even statistically different in terms of their outcome, in terms of their pain reduction as a main uh, research variable. But the only thing that was consistent between the three groups was education. So it wasn't the strength training and it wasn't the gait retraining, the things that people most commonly would get. Uh, it was this overarching understanding um, and reassurance that people were getting through these educational uh, educational series that they had throughout the uh the intervention uh, that seemed to be getting people better. I loved it. Uh, it was a bit controversial. Like there was a lot of edit letters to the editor back and forth. Um, but I thought the gen general idea of that was beautiful. 
Yeah. No, well, you, you mentioned the locus of control and that's, you know, that's essential, I think in, well, in life, but in, uh, in training, you know, understanding or, or believing rather that you're, you're, you know, in charge of what's going on or what's happening to you with you. That's really, really powerful. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent agree with you there. Yeah, man, for sure. And I can't wait, I can't wait for like three years from now when I disagree with everything that I've just said. Well, we'll have you back on the show. You can debate yourself, your past self, Peter. It'd be like, no, you were. This is Peter Kissel, July 28th, 2020. My <laughs> thoughts specific to this date. Yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer out of the way. So in the bit of time we have left, I want to talk um, maybe, let's pick one just common injury. Uh, let's see one that maybe you, is, is going to be the most interesting for a podcast. Let me put it to you that way. Something that, that you see quite a bit of and something that maybe there's a, a misconception around or something that you see people doing that, that, you know, pisses you off that they are not doing right. And with, you know, they could be doing differently and have much better outcomes. Um, we've talked about a few things already, but if you can come yeah. up with, uh, with an example, that'd be, that'd be cool. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, look like before I even say anything like this, obviously the caveat is that, uh, every individual or every injury is specific to the individual. Uh, I generally don't treat the same two people the same ever. Like uh, you have to look at so many different variables with things, but a, but on that note, uh, a broad category within that would be the global topic of tendinopathies or tendon injuries, just generically. Okay. Um, you know, uh, that, and I think this could be said globally for, you know, Achilles tendinopathies, uh, lateral elbow tendinopathies, like golfer's elbow or tennis elbow, or, uh, like any other quadricep tendinopathy, which I've seen you for, I think before, right? Yeah. Blowing it's, it's, it keeps, it keeps, confidentiality keeps coming here. and yeah. going. Yeah, it's okay. You can talk about it. Yeah. Me. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a natural evolution of those things for sure. But, you know, um, five years ago, we used to rest those things so dramatically. Like if you went and saw a therapist with Achilles tendinopathy, you're probably prescribed all kinds of stretching exercises, told that you can't run until the pain gets to X level, um, all these sorts of things. But I think it's pretty established at this point that, um, that sets a person up for failure. Hmm. Um, completely resting a tendon and expecting it to heal on its own um, is just not a reasonable expectation. Um, you actually need an appropriate dose of therapeutic loading for that tendon, essentially, essentially right out the gate. Um, you know, they're seen as a continuum now, like uh, sort of on the beginning form as like a reactive, like, you know, it's called a reactive tendinopathy. And then, you know, it goes down the continuum to more of like a dysfunctional or a degenerative tendinopathy, just generically. Okay. Um, tendons oftentimes don't even necessarily go about healing themselves. Um, like if you looked under ultrasound, and in fact, they're not recommended to have serial ultrasounds anymore because of this, because there is such a disconnect between imaging findings and a person's uh, symptoms with them. Hmm. Um, oh, but five years ago, you know, yeah, five years ago, I'd rest them, you'd stretch them, you do all these sorts of things. Um, now, like the first day that you see me, we're going to spend a lot of time establishing what the appropriate dose of loading for it is trying to keep it at a pain level of say three or four out of 10, uh, like during the time of exercise and for the 24 hours after. But I'm going to make you do that from day one, and probably a few times per day, um, mm -hmm. trying to keep it within that lower, that lower, uh, dose of pain or that lower intensity pain. Um, but the goal being that we continue to increase the loading and at some point, like thinking of a judicial scale, the resiliency in the tendon and the strength of the global muscle tendon unit is going to surpass whatever the offending stimulus was. And that pain is going to lessen and then eventually decrease. 
Um, so it seems counterintuitive that you'd say, well, why the hell am I loading a tenant that's already pissed off? But I think that it's reasonably established at this point that that's the appropriate place to go. So instead of a bunch of passive modalities, you know, people doing a bunch of manual therapy using all kinds of, you know, laser ultrasound, all these sorts of things, those can be utilized as an adjunct for sure, if, uh, if it makes a person feel better. But I think the primary way to go about treating those things is twofold. One, again, education, explaining why the person's doing this so that, you know, hopefully there'll be some compliance because of that. Yeah. And secondarily, loading it up like right from day one, for sure, like uh, immediately starting and then progressing that loading, uh, you know, within, I don't want to say as quickly as you can, but um, specific to the individual to try to get to a threshold where, you know, there's pretty high load activity, because that's what you need to get to to improve tenant health. Hmm. Interesting. And it's fun. It's, it's, it's interesting that your, your explanation ties back with what you were talking, what we were talking about load management, because generally, at least in, in my experience in, in talking to you about my tendinopathies, it's, it's usually been because I've, you know, plural. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I've done too much, too much, too fast. You're, yeah. you know, it's, it's the whole, you know, the, uh, the cobbler not having shoes and the coach breaking himself there you go. that he has no business, mm-hmm. you know, breaking himself. By doing stupid <laughs> things that he would he would uh, yell at his athletes for. Yep, sounds about right. It sounds about right. Yeah, 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 for sure. And uh, like some people are so dogmatic about very specific things. For a long time, it was eccentrics only for tendon health. Uh, I think now that's really been called into question. Uh, like the more contemporary stuff is this, like you know, tendon neuroplastic training, which is just essentially like very heavy and very slow, which seems to be preferential for the tendon. But when they even put that to test against different paradigms of loading it seems like it just has to be individualized to the person and progressive Hmm. at some point it's going to get better and in fact like the big my favorite quote on this stuff is from uh, this lady named jill cook she's kind of like one of these tendon guru researchers um she said you know you're treating the donut not the hole like you should not be focusing just on the very local like tiny little portion of the tendon that's inflamed and pissed off you need to be looking at the total unit and trying to increase the resiliency of the entire area mm-hmm. and that's what's going to get the individual better and yeah you might do follow-up ultrasound and the tendon still looks like shit but it doesn't matter anymore because the person's under pain the whole area is stronger and they're at no greater risk of injury than uh if the tendon looked normal that's that's a really that's a really interesting way of looking at it because at the end of the day you just need it to transfer force right that, that that's it and, and that's a whole purpose. it doesn't really matter how it does it so long as you can do it without without further injury or pain then who cares what it looks like yeah and again that's under the semblance of somebody that's previously had a tendon injury like obviously it goes without saying you don't want your tendon to look like shit under ultrasound <laughs> i'm just saying that there is a let that probably came out wrong but uh, there's less onus on that now than there was five years previous is my point got it it's, it's and to be fair it's probably like that for like in terms of the reliance on imaging for 90% of musculoskeletal injuries now, like, uh, you know, where there's such a poor correlation between somebody's imaging findings and their, their clinical symptoms just generically. That is really cool. Peter, this has been mm-hmm. a super fun yeah. conversation. Yeah, man, I've enjoyed it for sure. I always learn stuff. And I, like I've said this before on a, on a few other podcasts, um, you know, it, typically I would have I would have a conversation like this with you and I would uh, I'd be jotting stuff down. But now because, you know, tape's running, I don't have to do that. That's that's how we go. <laughs> Yeah, I hope I hope it didn't I hope it didn't bore the audience too much there. No, in our I, nerdy talk. But, I think yeah. it was uh, I think it was great. I think there was some really like practical stuff and also some like higher level you know uh, kind of thought nuggets for people to to chew on. Cool. And uh, the only thing I'm going to ask you is uh, is for you to send me some of those papers like the uh, 
the British Journal uh, infographic because I'd like to share. Oh, those infographic yeah. ones. Yeah, I think I don't know if it's again, I don't know if it's like a series they're doing or something. There's I'm sure there's been at least three or four of them at this point um, and at least one or two of them in 2020. So maybe they are. Uh, and it's some of the like the larger uh, sort of running researchers and like they're literally called I think they're titled like dispelling running myths. So they're they're great little one pagers and you could even send them out to your uh, to your athletes. I'd highly recommend them because it's a uh, it's it's challenging it's challenging dogmatic practices. Like they, I think I, they definitely did one a couple of years ago on, on running shoes. I think I actually sent it to you. Like, and you know, they had a, and it was actually a Canadian physio that, uh, uh what's the guy's name? Napier, Napier or something like that. Okay. He's, he's a really good marathoner, like a two thirty marathoner oh, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, they had some pretty damning quotes on the evidence behind footwear prescription, like saying one of them, it was something along the lines of, you know, being told that you require a certain type of footwear because you're an overpronator or a uh, supinator is equivalent to saying that you should be picking this shoe because it's red versus blue. <laughs> like they, they're just like, they're, they were just saying at the end of the day, you should try a variety of shoes, run around a little bit in them. If it feels really good on your foot, it's probably the right shoe for you. And so they've done the same sort of thing now with uh, strength training. Uh, there was one on heel strike pattern, like rear, rear foot versus moving somebody to midfoot or forefoot. Um, yeah, and they're great, man. They're just like these one page infographics, infographics with a little accompanied write up. And I'd highly recommend them to anyone in your audience for sure. They've done a great job with them. Love it. And my infographics are, you know, all the rage now, right? Like consume, consume a lot of information easily. Um, don't have to read a whole article. That's like, that's, that's perfect for the age of, you know, social media. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. So Pete, if, uh, if people want to find you, want to book an appointment, book an assessment, treatment, um, how can they do that? What's the best way? Sure. I mean, look, I work at a place called Totem Life Sciences in Toronto. Uh, great place, great owners. I think you, you know Tim and Stacey. They're yes. just great, yeah. great people in general. Yeah. And then uh, I co-own a clinic out in Burlington called The Proactive Athlete with a, a buddy of mine named Dave. So I'm out there uh, I'm about 50-50 in terms of my time spent between the two places. Cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll link, uh, listeners, I'll link to both of those clinics. So sure. uh, you can book through them, uh, book in to see Pete if you need to. Hopefully you don't. Hopefully you were... Yeah, I prefer you know. not to see you. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's the other thing I like about you is that you're not one of those people that, that wants to see me or any of my athletes multiple times. They, the idea is to, you know, not see us. And that's... That's always been kind of you know from a from a from somebody who who makes money when they when they see people. That's always I've always wondered about that, but I've always really respected that approach to it. I appreciate that. Yeah, and you know what? Like both places I work, both of their business models are predicated on that. Like you know, longer appointment times, like actually spending time with people, and you know, at the end of the day, if you get somebody better uh, in a short period of time and not having to see them a lot, the hope is that they tell their friends that are injured and hopefully you can get the same outcome that way too right for sure so everyone uh thank you again for listening if you enjoyed the show if you enjoyed our chat with peter today uh do rate and review us on itunes or wherever it is you get your podcast uh and if you want to support us financially there's now a, a great way to do that super straightforward just follow the link in the show notes or on the website to supercast uh and uh pledge what you can to help us make the show peter thanks again for, for spending the evening and uh and sharing your knowledge with us cool anytime man yeah thanks for having me appreciate it and you guys are doing uh, great work 